A poignant cartoon pictures a dejected woman on the edge of a dark pit, pondering the possibility of jumping to the other side. She looks into the depths and says, I can't, and walks away. I won't. She turns back. I must. I'll die if I try. I'll die if I don't try. I will. She jumps successfully. I did it. What have I done? Her story is the story of our life. Facing some obstacles, wanting to withdraw, to run away, screwing up our courage, making the effort, taking the risk, the leap, finding solid ground, success, and then self-doubt. Why is it that all of our effort, all of our striving, leads inevitably to the quicksand of self-doubt? As what seemed from a distance to be all we could hope for, turns out on arrival to be a disappointment, leaving us restless and unfulfilled. Many of you know that part of the movie, Frost Nixon, was filmed here at the Neighborhood Church. In reading about his life, I came across a Time Magazine article on an American success story. And it said, Richard Nixon had set out to make himself over completely, to create a new personality as if, alone among all of humankind, he could overcome his destiny. But the gods exacted a fearful price for this presumption. Nixon paid first the price of congenital insecurity. And ultimately, he learned what the Greeks had known, that the worst punishment can be having one's wishes fulfilled too completely. Nixon had three goals. To win the biggest landslide in history, to be remembered as a peacemaker, and to be accepted by the establishment as an equal. He achieved all of these objectives at the beginning of 1973 and lost them all two months later, partly because he had turned a dream into an obsession. On his way to success, he traveled on many roads, but he had found no place to stand, no haven, no solace, no inner peace. He never learned where home was. In the words of the protagonist in Walker Percy's novel, The Second Coming, it's possible to get all A's and still flunk life. It seems that all of life is a ceaseless effort to prove our worth with success as the payoff. We work at our education. We work at our location. We work at our family responsibilities. We work at our community involvement. And yet, no matter what the outward measure which registers achievement, there is that gnawing inner sense that it's not hanging together, flunking life with all A's. The previous century was dotted with the victims of success. Now, now Paul, that apostle of Christ, was by any measure a high achiever. Born a Jew, but part of a family that had achieved Roman citizenship, which was a high achievement for a Jew. He had mastered both the ways of Hellenistic culture and the religious laws which governed Jewish piety. Paul was a Pharisee, which meant he took his religious life with high seriousness, 
Looking back at his rapid rise within Jewish life, he could say in the third chapter of the letter to the church of Philippi, as far as the law can make you perfect, I was faultless. This young man was a high achiever. But as you know, it didn't hold together for him. And on that road to Damascus, he had an experience of inner transformation, which set him on an unexpected road and released within his life a source of spiritual power, which drove him to this awareness. At last, I know what life is all about. And then came a wind and a blinding rain, and life was never the same again. That was the experience that Paul had. In his Nobel Prize acceptance speech, novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn posed this question. Why was this gift given to us, and what are we to do with it? That's one of life's most fundamental questions. And for Paul, the answer was vivid and compelling. Quote, I believe nothing can happen that will outweigh the supreme advantage of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, Philippians 3.8. And so, out of that inner peace and perspective, Paul writes a letter to the church in the imperial city of Rome. This was a church of high achievers, Jews who took their tradition seriously, Romans who found in the Christian moral life an anecdote to the pagan paralysis of the runaway libido, the runaway sex drive. We are sons and daughters of the promise, wrote Paul. The promise made by God to Father Abraham, so let's live the promise. Romans 4.13. And then as this intricate fourth chapter unfolds, Paul suggests three coaching directives for living the promise. Three directives for achievers, those who know what it is to succeed in life. For first, says Paul, Abraham acknowledged God, God as the source of his life. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into being the things which have no being. Verse 17 of our text. How easy it is to forget the source. Now there's an old Swedish fable of the spider who draws out one slender filament as he lets himself down from a barn rafter. Stopping at midpoint, he begins to weave an intricate web with that first filament as his pylon, and then, and then the web completed. He admires the intricate design. Now that, that one long filament seems out of place, and so he cuts it to tidy things up, and of course the whole web collapses. Lost in his achievement, he had forgotten the source. And that's why it is precisely and especially the high achiever who needs this prompting word in life. God is the source. God gives life and being itself. And when you get confused and, and fall into the easy presumption that the web is, is supported by your creative powers, you need your short-sighted knowledge transformed by the acknowledgement that God is the source. But Paul goes on. To live the promise like Abraham, we need faith empowerment. The language is, is dynamic and decisive. 
But Abraham did not decide against the promise by unbelief. But he was empowered by faith, giving glory to God. Verse 20. You see, for Abraham, the promise was that of God's abiding care that that Abraham would be the father of many nations. Of us, to be exact. It was the promise to Abraham that was finally fulfilled in Jesus Christ and the unfolding of the Christian church. And Abraham, at the time he received the promise, was on Medicare. And Sarah's womb was dead. And yet, he did not doubt the promise, but rather faith was the energy of empowerment. Faith never means that that I am so close to God that I have God in my hip pocket, as so much of contemporary religiosity seems to suggest. No, no, faith means I choose to receive my life as a gift and live from out of that power God always provides when I praise, when I, when I give glory to God. That's why the reformer John Calvin could write in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, for to have faith is not to waver, to vary, to be borne up and down, to hesitate, to be held in suspense, to vacillate, finally to despair. Rather, to have faith is to strengthen the mind with constant assurance and perfect confidence to have a place to rest and plant your feet. A place, to, a place to call home, as it were. So that when your efforts produce achievement in your life, you don't embrace the world's inevitable delusion, look what I've created, but rather you know where the power comes from. And so it is. Glory to God. That's the key to faith empowerment. Abraham lived the promise, for he acknowledged the source of his life in God, and he found the power in his life through the gift of faith. And then Paul tells us the outcome for Abraham was justification. Quote, that is why his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness, verse 22. Now, isn't it fascinating that this word, Righteousness reflexively brings to mind the prefect's self. To speak of a righteous person is to think of a self-righteous person, someone holier than thou. Rabbi Simeon ben Yokai, one of the rabbis around the time of Jesus, once said, If there are two righteous men in the world, I and my son are these two. If there is only one righteous, I am he. Now, that's where Paul had been, and it had exhausted and broken him. The self-righteous person orbits around his own achievements, and it's exhausting. You feel pulled down by that drain of energy, and we've all been there. Another reformer, Martin Luther, put it in a graphic image so typical of his volatile style. If you feel or imagine that you are right, And suppose that your book, teaching, or writing is a great achievement, then, my dear, feel your ears. If you are doing so properly, you will find that you have a splendid pair of big, long, shaggy ass's ears. Righteousness is not ours to possess, but it is a gift of God which comes through faith in Christ. 
The Greek word for righteous is the same as the word for justice. God is the source of righteousness, and God bestows it upon us as the inner gift of self-ordering. The inner side of justification is a principle of inner self-ordering, and it's only as we are inwardly right that we can address the world and its right ordering. That's why Paul concludes this passage in the 25th verse. Jesus the Lord was raised from the dead for our justification, for our right ordering inwardly. When we dare to live the promise first given to Abraham, we will know with Paul that the source of the gift is God. For God gives life to the dead and calls into being that which has no being. When we are living the promise, we come to understand that the empowerment for our life comes not from our achievements, but by faith giving glory to God. And when we are living the promise, the outcome is God's righteousness engrafted in us as that inner ordering of the self made possible by the resurrection in Jesus Christ our Lord, verse 22. That's heavy stuff. But in it and through it, says our tradition, is life and joy and peace. As I said earlier, the core of the words justice and righteousness in Greek is the same. So when it comes to righteousness, don't think of self-righteous. Don't think of holier than thou or something up there that's unachievable. Rather think of relationship building, which is God's right wising. God's making our relationship right. And when God is making relationship right within the heart of faith, there is the possibility for right relationships in the community and world around us. It is a right ordering within that can point to a right ordering and justice outside us. Now, in in Hebrew, there are two words for righteousness and justice, mishpat and tzedakah. And so the prophet Amos can say in chapter 5, verse 24, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Righteousness and justice are two different flows coming from the same thing and the same source. That's why inner justice this morning is so important when it comes to living the promise. It's all about right relationships, both within and without. Journey inward, journey outward. Spiritual formation and ethical action. Friends, When we dare to live the promise, we will know that the source of the gift is God. And when we are living the promise, we come to understand that the empowerment for our life comes by faith, giving glory to God. And when we are living the promise, the outcome is God's righteousness engrafted in us as that inner ordering of the self made possible in Christ our Lord, for it is in him that we can live and move and have our very being. So be it.
and Amen.